0: Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Sajeev Saluja, an intern for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lane Desborough. Lane was the Chief Engineer of Insulin Delivery at Medtronic and the Chief Engineer at Bigfoot Biomedical. He is now pursuing a new idea in automated insulin delivery that is currently in stealth mode. So, let's just jump right in then. Mm -hmm. Um, So, before we talk about diabetes, I just wanted to ask you uh, about your background, what you were doing before this happened.
1: Sure. So, my background is in chemical engineering. Chemical engineers specialize. I chose to specialize in automation, which is basically putting the brains on top of chemical plants. So, I spent about 20 years in what's uh, called industrial process control all over the world implementing and remotely monitoring automation in oil refineries and chemical plants and pulp mills and mines. Uh, just had a um, an amazing uh, experience with all of these uh, uh, industries that, that most people don't even know about. We, we take for granted how things uh, arrive at our table or, or uh, you know, how gas arrives in, in a gas station. So, I uh, got to see a, a lot of things uh, done at incredible scale. So uh, these facilities are very large. They have lots of different control loops and they're very safe. So this was the industry I came from where industrial automation had uh, achieved incredible scope and incredible safety.
0: I see. So you were already thinking about closed loop systems and how to you know, automi- automate and optimize for things well before working on type 1 diabetes.
1: Exactly. So so I actually knew very little about type 1 diabetes, uh, no family history, my one one of my colleagues when I worked at Honeywell, uh, who's a, a world leader in automation, his son was diagnosed when when he worked for me and I just said Perry just go do what you need to do. We got you covered. And he basically disappeared for six months. His wife was afraid to give Jesse needles. So Perry was going in every day to give uh, Jesse his insulin. And, uh, and that was really all I knew about diabetes. I knew it had something to do with blood glucose and something to do with insulin. I was, I was pretty naive.
0: Yeah. So when did you, when were you sort of forced to learn
1: more about it? Uh, Just about 11 years ago, uh, almost to this day, we had noticed that our son, 10 at the time, was losing weight. He's a very lean guy like me to begin with, but there was one night after a bath, we noticed that he looked positively emaciated, thought something was wrong, and my wife took him to the doctor. Then that afternoon, uh, on the next day, uh, I got a call at work come to emergency. It looks like Hayden has diabetes. I That was the furthest thing from our mind. We, we actually thought it was maybe something else like cancer. Um, so I, I actually phoned my friend Perry that I, I'd worked with 10 years previously, whose son had been diagnosed and said, walk us through what's going to happen next. You're our only connection into this this new world that we find ourselves in. Can you, uh, explain what's, what, what, what we should be doing and how it's going to happen. So uh, got to the hospital, saw him, uh, and uh, I remember standing outside of the, the rural hospital. We were living in Nevada at the time, just outside of Lake Tahoe, uh, consoling my wife to this new reality. And at that point, we, we both resolved to do anything that we could to, to help, Hayden and the, the millions of people around the world with, with type 1 diabetes. This was, this was sort of our moment where our life changed and, and it took a right-hand turn. And ever since then, we have been committed to the, uh, the challenge of managing type 1 diabetes. We learned very quickly. One of the things that we did immediately was say, are there any clinical trials out there? Uh, are there things that we can do right away? We identified two trials. One was a drug trial. I think it was GAD, something like that. And then another was a, a an artificial pancreas, automated insulin delivery trial. So my wife, Lisa, she's an RN. So there was a, a pharmacological uh, uh, trial, and then there was the the trial with the engineering, the automated insulin delivery. So we went back and forth, and ultimately decided to do the automated insulin delivery one. It was only open to people within the first seven days of diagnosis. So he had to move very quickly with this. Uh, So he selected into the treatment group and on the morning of the seventh day, he was at Stanford University under the care of uh, one of the best pediatric endocrinologists in the world, Dr. Bruce Buckingham, uh, connected up to a prototype Medtronic closed loop system and uh, basically received a CGM and insulin pump at diagnosis. Uh, he was followed for another two years in that trial. And when I phoned uh, Bruce Buckingham uh, a few days after Hayden got out of his initial uh, in in clinic experience, I started asking him all these geeky questions. Uh, what algorithm did you use? And uh, uh, other other questions like that. And he said, well, you should really go to the diabetes technology meeting I- that's coming up in in San Francisco in a couple months, if you if you want the answers to those questions. So uh, I was still working for uh, by this time General Electric uh, on on the smart grid um, gas turbine combined cycle power plant remote monitoring and diagnostics. Um, so I just I just signed oh, up wow. for this this uh, uh, diabetes technology meeting as an interested parent for the weekend. I plugged down nine hundred dollars of my own money just to go learn. Uh, and oh, you didn't, didn't have salient- any
0: of the discount, the academic discount or anything.
1: No, it was just, <laughs> just whatever I want to learn. And, yeah. uh, and so I, uh, uh, there were two salient things came out of that meeting. The first was the FDA had a panel discussion where they talked about what was going on with automated insulin delivery. And I said, uh, at the end, so I rushed up to the mic in front of 900 people. I said, has the FDA reached out to the FAA and uh, OSHA and other, regulator, other regulatory agencies for whom control in complex socio-technical hazardous systems is well understood. In other words, did you even go ask the, um, the the FDA how they do it in cockpits? And their answer was, no, do you have any names? So this was the first clue that maybe mm. there was an opportunity in the world of diabetes to bring some new ideas in. Uh, the next salient thing that happened in that meeting was uh, these these conferences have great big buffet lines where you you, you get in line for lunch so uh i'm a natural introvert not an extrovert but since i had a lot of money at stake i i thought well i better be sociable so i turned to the guy behind me in the in the food line and introduced myself and i said who are you and he goes well i'm the chief technology officer for medtronic diabetes so i said well that's pretty interesting because i just uh, my son just benefited from the use of your system thank you so much uh, and I have a bunch of questions for you so as we're going down the buffet line I'm you know picking up the salad and the bun and the meat and I said well have you thought about this have you thought about this this is how we do this in this domain that I come from so we ended up having lunch together he ended up inviting me down to Medtronic Northridge their headquarters to talk to the artificial pancreas group and he hired me so He, uh, through a set of very serendipitous circumstances, uh, I found myself within months of Hayden's diagnosis at Medtronic Diabetes, reporting to the chief technology officer, and uh, within a week of joining Medtronic, leading the 640G uh, predictive low glucose management algorithm commercialization team.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So you happenstance meet the CEO of Medtronic, and all of a sudden your life is sort of changed in two ways not only first with the diabetes diagnosis and of your son and then you are thrown into this space
1: yeah yeah. um so medtronic was a fantastic learning experience they were quite open to and in fact that's why they hired me was this uh, i i joke that i'm i'm kind of an alien from the future like i i got in a time machine and and was able to assert that well this is how this is how these things are done that you're now trying to do this is how these were done 20 years ago in all of these mm-hmm. other domains so uh in some respects it was frustrating and i and i told this to the the president one time i said the only reason i ever came here was because I had a personal connection. You would never be able to attract somebody like me to come to uh, this industry because it is so far behind all of the other domains where feedback is used uh, and and, and automation is used so uh, pervasively. Uh, But on the other hand, it was a fantastic experience in terms of what it's like to be a medical device company, what the expectations are, what the requirements are, what the regulatory quality, Clinical expectations and responsibilities are. Uh, I had a couple other responsibilities there. I was in charge of design reliability manufacturability for the division. Helped to build their system engineering group. Uh, and then the other thing, they they have a, Medtronic is a huge database of uh, uploaded pump data called CareLink. So this is used for uh, clinician decision support and and sort of watching what's going on with with people's diabetes and. As near as I can tell, very few people were curious about what was in that database, but having spent so much time in, in these very, very large data uh, domains, like chemical plants are uh, producing, I don't know, a million samples a minute of data, uh, power plants are producing uh, a million samples of data a minute. So I, I, I walked in and I said, I'd like to look at that data. I'd like to see the hundred million uh, patient years of data that you've been collecting. And so I spent an awful lot of time looking at uh, that data and there's some pretty incredible insights that are available uh, as you might imagine uh, when you start to look at diabetes in a longitudinal way across uh, hundreds of thousands of people's uploaded data.
0: So this was data, every time you upload, you connect the pump to CareLink it gets sent to the Medtronic servers. Mm-hmm. So this was data that you're pretty much only able to see because you're in this role.
1: Exactly. I was, I, it was, it, it, it's data that, that I don't think anybody will ever see, uh, <laughs> except, except for people at, at Medtronic. And, uh, I had the whole thing sitting under my desk, uh, on a server. Uh, it was able at that point. I don't know if it would still fit there, but uh, I, how big I spent, was
0: the database approximately? Do you
1: remember? It was well. It would e- it easily fit on a three terabyte drive at the time. Mm-hmm. Now that all depends on how it's compressed and how it's stored. So so I don't know what that is today. But at least at the time, this would have been nine years ago, eight years ago. It all it all fit on a, a fairly small drive. I see. And, and actually, this is a point. When people talk about big data, there's not mm-hmm. really big data in the world of diabetes. Big data in, in diabetes is tiny data as compared to these other uh, domains. Uh, so you think about vision systems on a, on a car for autonomous driving. That's an, an immense volume of data flowing in uh, 60 hertz or 30 hertz, uh, high def. That is, a, that is big data. Uh, genomic data is big data. Uh, this is not big data, right? If you think about blood glucose, you're getting 288 CGM uh, estimated glucose values a day. You're getting a couple dozen data points of insulin stuff. It's it's not big data.
0: Yeah, I, I want to talk about talk about more about this later. But since you brought this up, do you think that it's not about Adding more data to the algorithms right now. You're saying that what we need is to relook at the algorithms themselves.
1: Um. Are Are you referring to things like these ML AI algorithms that are
0: just the closed loop uh, system in general? Uh, yeah, yeah, ML AI algorithms that that learn from data.
1: Um. Well. So. There's this, there's this concept of adaptive control that has been around for decades in other domains. Basically, when you have a, the thing you're trying to control, and we in control engineering, we call them plants, no matter whether it is a chemical plant or uh, an aircraft uh, uh, wing or, or a person with diabetes. We call it the plant. The plant we're trying to think is, is the control. And some of these plants change over time they evolve. Uh, so for instance, if you're trying to control a heat exchanger, you might have fouling on that heat exchanger that's changing the heat transfer coefficient that's uh, uh, transferring uh, and adapting uh, how, how your temperature controller works over time. So the point is, there are other um, approaches that have been used for decades when your plant is changing over time. And uh, this is really what's going on with people with diabetes is your your diabetes never stays still. Your, your behavior and your physiology are continuously changing. You're becoming more resistant or more sensitive to insulin. And so, uh, this is, this is really where the algorithms, I think the next Vanguard is, is how do you, how do you adjust for the fact that over the course of somebody's life, their insulin sensitivity may, may change by two orders of magnitude. A little baby may need two units of insulin a day. Uh, somebody with type Two diabetes may need 200 units a day. How do you design a controller that can work across that incredibly broad range of use? So, uh, sure, ML, AI is one approach to doing that. Uh, But a recurring theme of of my uh, experience has been that simple is better and old school is better statistics is better just throwing things into a data blender and and just accepting whatever comes out uh is is uh, is something that i'm actually quite concerned about and that's that's not something that you're ever going to hear me support and 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 that would only be possible if there was sufficient data Uh, there isn't sufficient data
0: i see and when you say there isn't sufficient data are you referring to the types of data like right now commonly we just have insulin and glucose uh, series right or are you yeah. saying we need to have more sensors and actually try to measure insulin resistance for example
1: um, I think I think um, I need to uh, uh, maybe clarify a little bit what, I'm, what I meant by that or maybe I misspoke but um, one of the issues with even the, the the simple insulin and glucose data is that it is, uh, it's is—it's not actually very high quality data from an identification perspective, from a modeling perspective, because you've got all of these confounding inputs. People eat and bolus at the same time. So uh, you don't really know how to attribute that response. Is that because of the meal? Is that because of the insulin? Uh, even the meal bolus timing, as you know, if you have a uh if you announce a meal but eat it eat it before or after you announce the the meal uh in a bolus calculator you'll get a very different response to that right pre-meal bolusing is a very different effect than post-meal bolusing on the postprandial uh, glucose exposure so uh it's both the quantity and the quality of the data that that make this uh, a challenge for identification um another challenge is that uh if you have any kind of feedback in a loop uh, it it manipulates and, and changes the the model that you identify from it. So there's a whole science called closed loop identification. How do you identify the proper plant model when you are uh, in semi closed loop? And even a human making an intervention is semi closed loop. So there's all sorts of challenges with that. So I could go on and on about the challenges of the data. It's not just the 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 lack of it. Um, in one dimension. It's also the quality of it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So those are the challenges related specifically to automated insulin delivery. I wanted to ask you do you think Automated insulin delivery insulin pumps closed loops closed-loop insulin pumps. Is this? Where we should focus or should we focus our attention on something else entirely?
1: well uh First of all, I want to go back a little bit to what you said about the challenges with, with automated insulin delivery. There's dozens of challenges with automated insulin delivery, and what I just talked about wasn't even the major one. Uh, uh, so I, I didn't want to let that pass by without identifying what I think is the major one, which is the slowness of insulin. Uh, rapid-acting insulin delivered subcutaneously is not very fast. Uh, when, you, when you inject a bolus, with a syringe, a pen, or a pump, uh, nothing happens for half an hour. And then and only then does insulin start to go down. And that, just imagine trying to design a car's uh, cruise control where you press the brake and nothing happens for half an hour and then it starts to slow down. That is the fundamental challenge with uh, automation, is if we had a faster actuator, we could get away with... uh, much more uh, effective control. And the reason, the reason I, I speak so uh, um, emphatically about this is this was what my grad school research was all about, was achievable performance of, of, of control loops. And it turns out that the determining factor, doesn't matter what control loop and what it's controlling, the determining factor is the delay the delay between make, when you make a change to the actuator, like inject something, and the time that you start to see the effect of that change on the manipulated variable, in our case, the, uh, the sensor glucose value. So until we can make that faster, we are going to be constrained in our achievable performance. And by achievable performance, I mean things like time and range. So time and range is, is going to hit some, um, some boundary, uh, and it probably is already close to that. And until we get faster insulins or faster pathways or, other, or, or slow the disturbances down with things like Pramlintide, throw slow down. If you can't speed up the actuators, slow down the disturbance, slow down the food. So there's other ways to do this. But I think the proper mental model to have is, is we need a faster way to get uh, bioactive insulin to the liver where it can do its job.
0: I see. So I should have said those were some of the challenges with automated insulin. Delivery. Yeah, no
1: worries, no worries.
0: And um, so you're saying th- this car example is very interesting. It's like you can't learn to drive no matter how smart you are if when you press on the brake, like you said, it takes 10 seconds for the car to do anything.
1: Yes, there uh, there are so many metaphors that are related to this car problem, uh, and i think those also speak to some of the other challenges with automation like um, mode transition Uh, what happens when the car doesn't know how to self-drive anymore and just gives gives control back to the user who has been out of the loop maybe paying attention to something else and now they have to get in the loop at a time when it's most challenging when when the computer doesn't know what to do anymore and it gives up and now the computer now the human has to take over so they're in a disadvantaged Uh, potentially de-skilled, loss of of situational awareness, they have to get back in the loop and do something. So it's not not quite as bad as your Tesla doing that, where you have three seconds to get back in the loop before you crash. Uh, But uh, as you know, there's many different things that can go wrong with uh, insulin delivery pathways. And there's a set of troubleshooting activities that need to take place. Is it the insulin that's fried? Is the site uh, no longer absorbing insulin? uh am i sick that's a big uh, one. It, it and and another five things and you try one thing and you have to wait two hours to see did that fix it no that didn't fix it so and then you're just getting progressively closer to dka uh as you're going through this troubleshooting experience so uh i actually don't worry about the closed loop per se Uh, The algorithms and I don't get into these battles of whether PID is better than model predictive control is better than fuzzy logic They're all better than open loop. Uh, I worry about the transitions the transitions uh, Into closed loop for the first time when somebody goes on a a new closed loop system uh, how how uh correct are their carb ratios and basal rates and insulin insulin sensitivity factors how sensitive is the algorithm to mismatches in those how is it going to adapt through maybe adaptive control or other physiology individualization what what exposure to hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia is going to take place while that algorithm is figuring out your physiology and maybe fixing uh the settings that were a little off those are the things i worry about
0: i see So we, I guess we kind of jumped ahead a little bit uh, in your timeline, but at Medtronic, you said you learned about, you know, the, it was just like a big company experience. You got uh, the FDA regulatory perspective and manufacturing, scalable manufacturing of insulin pumps. Mm -hmm. But after that, you went and started a company called Bigfoot. Can you talk about that transition?
1: Sure. This transition happened just as hayden my son was entering puberty which is a difficult time of life for anybody lots of changes going on and uh and and uh, if it's challenging for for people without diabetes it's very challenging for people with diabetes you become very insulin resistant you're growing a lot so you're eating a lot Uh, you're maybe not caring as much about uh what's going to happen to you in 10 years as what's happening at a social level or so so we were very sensitive to the fact that, that things weren't moving as quickly as I would like, as we would like. So that was really what precipitated uh, three of us getting together to to co-found Bigfoot, three, three diabetes dads getting together to say, we need to move faster. And this was the whole we are not waiting thing was playing out at the time and night scout, which I had direct involvement of. So we, we sort of had this hacker mentality of. We can't change the system from within the system we need to go do something different so that was really what precipitated us getting together was the the desire to move more quickly and and uh, help expose people to the incredible benefits we were seeing with with closed loop systems
0: i see so did all of you work at medtronic or or no
1: no so we actually came at it from three different vectors so Brian Brian Maslish, who's the namesake of Bigfoot, he was a quantitative trader on Wall Street, so he did algorithm development basically to he calls it scrape nickels out of the stock exchange and he was very good at it uh, and and he applied those uh, uh, those algorithm uh, techniques to his uh, closing the loop for his son and his wife, both who have type one. So he had approached it from a uh, uh, sort of a hacking perspective and then Jeffrey Brewer, the CEO of of uh, Bigfoot, he had uh, attempted to advance things through advocacy. He was the president of the JDRF before joining Bigfoot. So I've been trying to do it from industry and Brian had been trying to do it through through hacking and direct engagements with the FDA. And the FDA said, no, no, you, have, you can't just give this to people. You have to actually make this a medical device. You have to go through the pathway. Uh, so he had tried to do it that vector. And, and Jeffrey had tried to do it through seeding academic research as the president of the JDRF. He's the one who started the whole artificial pancreas um, initiative at the JDRF. So it was really through the failure of our attempts uh through three different vectors to move the ball forward that uh we decided to get together and go a different path
0: i see so you all had sort of unique obstacles in each of your different fields and you decided that by coming together you thought it would speed things up Mm -hmm. was it just the collaboration or were there other strategies and how did that end up
1: working out um (laughs) there were many strategies they i think it i think it also relates to this notion that hacking is is an incredible thing and we've seen all sorts of incredible uh, value created in say the diy loop and open aps and android aps and night communities plenty of innovation and creative thought and 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 value created uh i think there's a big difference between that and doing this at scale. Uh, This is back to my own experience with these chemical plants, which are the biggest things in the world, the most complex systems ever built by man, uh, where you're making billions of pounds of things a year. Uh, And and I think this is really the FDA's mindset and headset too, is how do we make something, how do we we approve for marketing something that is life critical, you're injecting a, a dangerous hormone, uh, insulin, how do you design this in such a way that it can work at a, at a population scale, that, it, that it, it, it can meet the needs of such a, a heterogeneous uh, cohort of users doing all manner of things that humans do? So I think that, that actually is the real challenge uh, of so many of these small companies, these startups, that uh, they have this initial sort of aha moment, cool idea look what we did. And then the challenge is how do you, how do you do that at scale and do it in a compelling uh, safe and effective way that is going to be reimbursed by the payers and, and prescribed by the doctors. So it's actually a fairly complex task. And this is where my hat is off to the big companies like Medtronic. They're kind of like the army. They're, they're laying, incredible supply chains to make sure that the soldiers are getting what they need. And the hackers are more like the special forces who drop in and say, look at the cool thing I did. Like they can't be supported very long without those supply chains. So this is, this is really, I think, what 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 many startups are challenged by is is the infrastructure required uh, early on. Jeffrey was saying that it's going to take 100 million dollars to do this. Well, I think Bigfoot's raised about 160 million dollars so far. This is a big lift. This is a big lift from hacking a couple uh, insulin pumps and CGMs uh, to, to to get through that that incredibly uh, uh, important and challenging process of medical device development. It is a hard thing to do. It is hard to do things at scale.
0: Sorry. So so Bigfoot, you're saying, is is trying to get there to the place that Medtronic is sort of at, where they're, they have this constant supply chain. You know, if things go wrong, there's not going to be huge delays in shipments, for instance. And they're trying and to do that. By the well. way,
1: when I, when I referred to supply chain, I, I wasn't even referring to a physical supply chain. And I think this is another, this is another uh, thing that I certainly didn't appreciate before I joined Medtronic is the, the activity of creating a medical device is, is more like a flow of knowledge and the generation of documentation. Uh, the byproduct of that knowledge creation is the product itself. Like most people think oh it's the widget you know that's what you do no actually most of what you do is 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 knowledge creation and documentation thereof so they call this traceability how do you trace from customer need to requirement to design to development to test to verification to validation to release nothing's been shipped yet right that is just how do you get to uh something that you present to the fda and say Uh, we would like you to clear this or approve this as a medical device. Um, I've heard anecdotally that the 670G uh, submission, uh, uh, PMA submission for the Class 3 medical device for Medtronic was 100,000 pages, a pallet full of paper.
0: So the supply chain help you're referring to is help with the FDA regulatory process, help with the
1: the quality systems, the the clinical systems. How do you run a clinical trial? These clinical trials are ten million dollars, twenty million dollars, uh, two hundred people recruited for six months, uh, and the 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 huge uh, uh, infrastructure required for doing just that, just these clinical studies, is is immense.
0: I see. So you're saying startups that have to do this process each and every time it's 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 a big overhead
1: it's an overhead i mean it's a necessary overhead but what i would say is the uh uh oftentimes it's not appreciated that this is necessary early on it's like well look i've got this thing that does this thing and it should be ready to go uh no actually (laughs) that that's like the very start of the game you still have all of this other work to do so uh, I, think, I think that was definitely a learning process for, for many of the people at Bigfoot, uh, that this is actually a very hard thing to do. And this is where the, I think the DIY community is discovering a little bit of this now as well, that uh, it's, it's not a slam dunk to, just because it's working on on somebody in, in your own family doesn't mean that that's something ready to go uh, be used by 100,000 people.
0: Right. So you kind of worked your way back to Medtronic. You had started in this nice oasis where all the FDA regulatory stuff is taken care of, and then you're out in the deep end at Bigfoot, and you have to work your way back.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's a good way of putting it. I, I I've definitely had hacker proclivities in my own uh, life, where I've gone through phases of this, and and I've had this realization that that there's a time and a place for that. And there's also a time and a place for execution at scale. Uh, that that there needs to be a pivot from when do you stop innovating? When do you stop exploring? And when do you start uh, exploiting? When do you start saying, look, okay, design freeze. Now we need to go make, now we need to document and make a hundred thousand of these things. We'll, we'll get to the gen two later. We're going to stop innovating uh, and we just need to ship. We just need to get something. So um, I, I know that's where Bigfoot is right now. They're getting ready to, in fact, it might have happened today. They they are getting ready to do uh, their submission of their product. It's been a long time coming. It's been almost six years.
0: And you've, sin- you've since left Bigfoot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, can you talk, I know you're in Stealth mode, but is there anything you can you can talk about uh, with what you're working on right now?
1: What I would say is that I am a Feedback control engineer at my core. I've been doing feedback control for 30 years. I joined the fight against type 1 diabetes with the weapon in my hand of feedback control I worked in Medtronic doing control uh, for five and a half, uh, four and a half years. I did the same at Bigfoot for four and a half years. So uh, I'll, let, I'll let your listeners guess what I'm doing now.
0: Okay, that sounds good. You might have already just answered this, but I was going to ask you what is your best description of what the cure for type 1 looks like?
1: Uh, I know that this is such a polarizing difficult topic, so I'll answer it this way. I believe there are many burdens associated with living with type 1 diabetes. Uh, If I were to broadly categorize them into a couple areas, I would say there's the physical burden of living with diabetes, the financial burden of living with diabetes, the cognitive burden of living with diabetes, and the attendant emotional burden of living with diabetes. Also, I believe diabetes is a is a family disease. It affects not just the person with diabetes, but their their loved ones and their friends. So in answer to your question of what does a cure look like for me? I think it's the progressive reduction of those burdens. One, how do we reduce the physical burden of this disease? Uh, It might be the physical burdens of the therapies themselves, uh, uh, painful injections or carrying a bunch of stuff around it might be the attendant loss of sleep from alarms it might be um uh the the uh, ongoing complications that that, that that might be possible so there's a physical a reduction of the physical burden reduction of the financial burden as we know from the terrible stories about insulin access and 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 medical device costs there's tremendous and uh, absenteeism and presenteeism uh, there's uh, plenty of financial challenges of living with diabetes, uh, but I tend to focus on the cognitive burden of of diabetes, the thinking about it all the time. Uh, th- this this notion that people without diabetes have a wonderful endocrine system that's doing a feedback loop that you don't even know it's doing that thing. You can eat what you want, exercise what you, how you want, and your blood glucose is flat. When now, all of a sudden, that that... Loop is put into manual mode, and you 're doing this. This is a tremendous burden and the the therapy is doing nobody any any favors with this right now. I think the, these therapies are really driving up some of this burden uh, alarm burden right an alarm is is a is a negative reinforcement. you failed again, you failed again you 're screwing up again you 're not meeting the high standard that your doctor said uh, it 's just such a burden, and then that has an attendant. Emotional burden to it. Now you're angry, or now you're uh, yourself. So um, I am very much focused on how do I outsource these tasks that a human is now has no choice but to confront, like thinking about their their blood glucose, thinking about the meal they just had or the meal they're going to have or the exercise they want to do or whatever the the play date that they want their kid to go on. How do we how do we outsource some of those uh cognitive tasks to the computer because the computer doesn't care the computer will happily do this never get bored do it the same way every time and this is where we've seen these other industries so these plants that i used to work in they they would have five operators for the entire plant something crazy like that like controlling five thousand different things so just imagine that, that that's what i see the real opportunity from a burden reduction is how do we bring therapies to market that actually reduce the burden rather than increase the burden? How do we let people live the lives they choose to live with the level of engagement that they choose? Some people want to be very active in their management of diabetes. It's hard to sustain that level of of engagement, right? It's hard to be on top of your diabetes. Uh, I think we've seen data that says over time people generally um, have more difficulty managing uh, and achieving uh, time and range or A1C goals, the longer they've had diabetes. like It's hard to sustain the effort. So what happens if we can use therapies to, to, to say to people, if you don't want to be engaged with your diabetes or, or through socioeconomic circumstances can't be engaged with your diabetes, how can we use automation to, to help with that rather than be a, an additional burden or hindrance?
0: So is the take home message here that we can't only be focusing on optimizing your A1C or your mean blood glucose because lowering your A1C 0.5% for you might be a completely different cognitive burden than in a financial burden than it is for me.
1: Absolutely that, that that's a great point and and I think that this this notion of looking at something like an A1C or a time in range it's it's really what What's the human cost to doing that? Because some people are quite willing to put that effort. Like you look at the parents of young children with diabetes. Uh, we were there ourselves. We would kill ourselves to 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 do what, like, this is why we created Night Scout. <laughs> and, and all these, other, like, this is why the DIY movement and the whole, we are not waiting emerged because... Uh, very, very motivated parents said, "We want the best for our children, and we will take this on our shoulders." Well, guess what? Those children are growing up now, and they have a different set of objectives and priorities than their parents do. And uh, I think there's a huge opportunity there for young adults to. Um, I think there's a big unmet need for 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 these folks and other folks in terms of the the kind of complexity that that today's therapies uh have and uh, and expect they're really catering to a, a very advanced uh very motivated group and i worry that we're maybe leaving a larger group behind uh of people who who having no hitters isn't isn't their highest priority
0: that's a great message i know we're a little bit over time here but i wanted to ask if there's anything else you wanted to talk about or say
1: um the only thing i would pose is there there, there's certainly what is it it takes a village or it takes an army to to address this diabetes is the enemy everybody's bringing in different uh perspectives and and a desire to help Uh, and all i would say is that the the challenges that i've seen have not been in the innovation area in the in the Uh, new basic research area it has been in the in the scaling in in the how do you take a cool idea and now get it through uh, a medical device development or regulatory pathway there's um, a well-established measure in other uh, engineering domains called technology readiness levels or TRLs TRLs help to quantify where you are on that evolution from basic demonstration of a concept, mixing two test tubes together, look at the cool thing that happened to uh, that's TRL one. And then TRL nine is now we got a a chemical plant that can make a billion pounds of that a year at at a cost effective. So the the, the getting from TRL one to TRL, TRL nine is a long journey and you can actually benchmark where you are on that journey. And uh, the last message I would say is just, just be cautious that initial progress that might look so fantastic, you've got a long way to go. Most people so you look at you look at there's dozens of companies that have pumps and CGMs that are coming on the market, right? We get news about these all the time. Little companies, oh look at the cool thing they've done. They got a MEMS pump or they got a some other new novel CGM thing, right? So that's great. But if you actually go look at where they are on the technical maturity, they're, they're typically at around technology real- readiness level two or three. And if you go look at these benchmarks of, well, other companies that eventually got all the way through how far and what what journey, what fraction of the journey, they're about 10 to 15% of the way there. So I, re- I would really encourage people to focus on that's where the pain, that's where the failures, that's where the struggles are. It's not in the demonstration of the novel uh, and the, the mixing the two test tubes together. As hard as that is, that's the easy part. The hard part is the scaling part. At least that's my perspective on things.
0: Yeah, no, I. it almost seems like another symptom of this hyper-focus on optimizing for just the A1C because you put together whatever you can in this most obscure basic science fashion to get that A one C lowered or or get the accuracy MARD whatever in the CGM up um but then you're saying that we also need to consider how far are we actually from TR10
1: yeah so and actually that that brings up another point that that I have often seen in some of these academically derived uh uh Automated insulin delivery systems a real focus on on these metrics like time and range or a1c and you almost get into this little competition. Mine's got 72% time and range. Mine's got 73% time and range. I'm actually concerned about the level of aggressiveness of these controllers to achieve that. So I I use back to the car metaphor. These people are building Indy cars. (laughs) They're building high performance cars for small race courses, right? These clinical trials are, are an, only an approximation of the real world. So they're having these little contests of my car can go faster than your car in this little trial environment. Um, that's not my thing. My thing is building Subarus for, for a million people, right? That is actually a different thing. Uh, there's a whole branch of control called robust control. How do you design a controller that is robust? Uh, how do you design? So because the other thing is you need the you need an IndyCar driver to drive an IndyCar. You need somebody with very high reaction times and and just incredible athletes to achieve that. So my concern is, again, I think shared with the FDA of what happens if we give a car like that to a teenage driver or you see what I mean? Their the, the, there, there care has to be taken in terms of how you actually design uh and tune these algorithms
0: so how should a young person that's in the situation that is say working on a new technology a new kind of insulin pump whatever it may be a new patch how should they assess whether this is something that they can take to tr10 or not
1: the i would encourage if i if i look back over my career the, the thing that has probably served me best, and and I think this is an area of of general weakness. I hope I'm not making a generality, is statistics. Uh, the the statistics in in the application of statistics in in medical device design, and furthermore, diabetes is a data disease, right? It is it is absolutely a data disease. So, statistics are so important when you're dealing with data, and when you're dealing with with small samples and, and non-Gaussian distributions and, and uh, outlier data. And this is, this is part of my aversion to this, this general trend towards ML and AI and just throwing everything into the blender and seeing what happens. Uh, we, have, we have messy data, we have small amounts of it. It's not very high quality, which means you really need to have your your statistics game uh, at its A level. So that would be what I would say to anybody coming up is make sure you've got an A game in statistics and probability and sampling and, and modeling and simulation. Those are the things that are going to serve you well through your entire career.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lane. This was an awesome conversation.
1: I learned so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was very nice to meet you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Sugar Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lane as much as I did. In next week's episode, we will continue to hear about more groundbreaking ideas in type 1 diabetes. Stay tuned.